Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, God's word given to us once again. Hebrews 2, verse 1, God's word. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. So we all suffer from the same tendency or instinct, which is understandable but not always very smart. And this is the impulse to avoid punishment. That is, mom walks in the room, catches your hand in the cookie jar, the police lights flash, or your boss catches you in a lie. And our first thought, generally, is to hide, run, deny, or blame shift. It's kind of like one of those high-speed car chases. For a simple traffic violation, the perp races off to get away, but once the helicopters are on him, it's pretty pointless. Sure, they may get away in the movies, but this guy is going to get nabbed, and the list of crimes only gets longer. Of course, we have been like this ever since... Eve and Adam stitched fig leaves together. And we keep trying this because when it comes to human authorities, escape is possible. Murderers do go unpunished. Bills remain unpaid. Sometimes we can talk our way out of a speeding ticket. And it feels so good to not get caught. Well, if we can get away with human from human consequences then what about from divine chastisements? After all, we don't see God. His providential judgments are ambiguous at best. Sure, surely God doesn't see what we do in darkness, and even if he does, he won't punish us. Well, this foolish impulse within us is one that the author of Hebrews wants to rid us of, which he does again by directing us to the greatness of the Son. So in chapter 1, we just had laid for us the glorious and indestructible foundation of Jesus Christ, both his person and work. With a laundry basket of Old Testament quotes, we were shown the divinity of the Son, who created with the Father, and who upholds all of providence. And where this age is passing away like an old t-shirt, Jesus remains the same forever. Additionally, we learn that the Son was praised as the marvelous fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. After being humbled unto death, Jesus was declared the Son of God in power on his resurrection. He was crowned with splendor at the right hand of God, and angels fell in prostrate, worshiping the Son. And his throne will last forever and ever. Finally, as every last enemy is being subdued under the Son's feet, Jesus is preparing to bring forth for us new creation. 
He fashioned the old world, and the Son is the author of the new. He will recycle this age with all its pollutions of sin and misery, and he will usher in the spotless holiness of New Jerusalem. Simply put, the author of Hebrews has wowed and wooed us with the beautiful bounties of the Son. Greater than the angels, the exact essence of his character, God's character, and our redeeming Davidic King, Jesus Christ is the God-man who is worthy of all our worship, devotion, and prayers. And with this truth firmly fixed, now the author um, calls us to respond appropriately. If this is the reality of Christ, then we must pay utmost attention to him and what we've heard about Jesus. The need to cling to, to be devoted to, and to heed the word of Jesus is of critical importance. Christ and his word is the truth that saves us and sustains us in this life and forever. Thus, we cannot have a lackadaisical stance toward the word. This truth is not a give or take. This is not a cute sentiment that we can just hang upon the wall, but paid little heed to day in and day out. As you know, there are many truths of this world that we accept, but we don't value very much, or they have very little impact on us practically. For example, it's true enough that Saturn has rings, but unless you're a guide in a space museum, this rarely crosses our minds, and it's a big so what for everyday life. Yet the word of Christ cannot be such a truth. Instead, we need to give Christ our full attention. Wholehearted devotion is due to him. Indeed, note how the author underscores what we have heard. It's the message of Christ read and proclaimed in our ears that we have to pay attention to. For as you know, our faith is hearing-based. Our devotion is rooted in the word. Likewise, our commitment to, to the word here is painted in nautical terms. This word for paying attention to is also used of boats being anchored in harbor or moored in port. That is, we need to be anchored to the gospel so that we don't drift away. If our ship isn't securely fastened, then the winds of the wickedness and the currents of the world push us out of the safe haven of Jesus onto the dangerous high seas. And this imagery here suggests that carelessness and distraction. That is, if you pull your ship into harbor but forget to drop the anchor, or don't tie it fast to the dock, then you slowly drift out into lethal waters. That is, you are focused on other things. You are busy getting a dinner ready or doom-scrolling on your phone, and you didn't notice the currents pulling you away from the land. Thus, the saints here appear to be preoccupied with other matters. Their faith has lost focus, and it's nodding off to sleep. Thus, to be anchored in Christ is consecrated or concentrated loyalty. It's disciplined mindfulness of of where uh, of Christ that never drifts from Him being at the center. 
and to wake up these drowsy and distracted saints, the author now points us to the power of God's word. That is, we should heed what we've heard about Christ because it's effective and it never fails. And to drive home this point, the author presents us with a contrast. He compares the Old Testament word with the New Testament word. As he says, the angels or the message declared through angels, which is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant delivered at Sinai. Now, this aspect isn't highlighted in the book of Exodus, but later authors mentioned how the law of Sinai was passed on through angels. God spoke at Sinai, and his word was heard in the presence of angels. Paul mentions this in Galatians 3, and Stephen also does in Acts 7. The Mosaic Covenant, given through angels, also links back to chapter 1, verse 1 of this epistle, where the author said that God spoke of old through prophets, who are human messengers analogous to angels. Either way, the key issue here is that the old covenant word was legally binding. Reliable here has the sense of legally authoritative and enforced. And from the Old Testament, it's more than obvious that the Mosaic law was legal, for it was ratified in blood, it was sworn to by oaths, the law was carved on stone tablets, and deposited in the ark at the very feet of God within the holy center of God's people. Authoritative, powerful, and binding was the law at Sinai. And being signed and sealed, the law ensured a righteous retribution for every last transgression and disobedience. As the author says, no sin ever escaped punishment under Moses, but each violation of law received a just recompense. Now, once again, the author here puts his finger on a key attribute of the Mosaic law namely that of strict justice. Now, this does not deny that there was mercy under Moses or the forgiveness of sins, yet it does showcase how every sin had to be paid for under the law. As the author will say later on, there was no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Under Moses, you obtained forgiveness by animal sacrifice which paid for your sin, appeased God, and purified his sanctuary. At the altar, you didn't die for your sin, but the lamb died for you. Additionally, the legal system of Sinai laid out every punishment for each crime. The law mandated that human courts judge every last transgression of the law. And where the human court failed or couldn't reach... God in his special providence stepped in. Thus, in the curses of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord talks about how the curses will pursue and hunt the sinners down until they perish. Or as we read about in Joshua 24, with witnesses standing against the people, if the people forsake the Lord, then he will not forgive them, but will consume them. Hence, one of the standout features of the law was that there was no escaping punishment. 
under Moses, justice had to be satisfied either by sacrifice or by retribution. The Lord even enacted generational retribution to ensure this. That is, if the fathers ran up a sin debt too large for them to pay, the kids had to pay off the balance of justice to the third and fourth generation. Israel often thought that they could escape punishment. They sinned with impunity at times, as if God was not watching. But as you know from the history, it always came back to bite them in the end. Under Moses, the Lord was often slow to anger. He would delay judgment in the hope of the people repenting and offering sacrifices. But when this did not happen, punishment eventually was poured out without fail. Therefore, the author's point is that God's word of old was legally binding and inescapable were its sanctions. There was no careless drifting away from the Mosaic law without being punished. To forsake God's word at Sinai necessarily and always resulted in dire consequences. And there was no other way about it. Yet this truth about the Old Testament is made to compare it with the New Testament word. If the old covenant law was completely inescapable, then how much more the New Testament? Note that the contrast is from lesser to greater. The Old Testament was proclaimed through angels. The New Testament through the, or was spoken by the word, which is a reference to Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And if what was spoken by angels was binding and effective, how much more what is declared by the Lord the Son come in the flesh. Hence, if the Old Testament saints couldn't escape the law, how much more will we not be able to escape if we neglect Jesus? Yet at this point, something in the comparison feels off. Now, God speaking via angels, compared to speaking through the Son, these match up. The inescapability of the Sinai word and that of the Son's word These align nicely. And yet the character of the spoken word seems to be out of balance. Note that the Old Testament word is painted as retribution, but the Son's word is called our great salvation. One is law and the other is gospel. This contrasts punishment with deliverance. It juxtaposes wrath with grace, judgment with merciful pardon. And herein lies the power of the author's argument. For when it comes to punishment, it's only natural for us to want to escape. No one wants to be judged or penalized. The pain, the shame, and the humiliation of retribution flips our inherent impulse of fight or flight. We see chastisement and punishment coming, and we flinch, we recoil, as if a knee-jerk reaction. It may not be exactly proper, but it's very understandable and normal. And yet, where avoiding judgment is reasonable, to evade salvation is irrational. Salvation is to be forgiven, reconciled, purified, healed, loved, and accepted. Salvation is is all that is sweet and delicious. 
To dodge judgment is like playing hooky on a bad day at work. This makes sense. But to run away from salvation is like skipping out on a magnificent vacation. Who does this? It's simply crazy. Who in their right mind wants to bypass the great salvation of Christ? And yet, as the saints drift away from Christ, this is what they're doing. Their interest in other things beside Jesus is not them running from Sinai and its loud rumblings of the law, but it is them walking away from redemption and life evermore. Indeed, in this contrast between law and gospel, between retribution and salvation, the author assumes the basis for the difference, namely Christ's atoning death. Having made purification for sin, Jesus sat down on high. Under the law, animal blood didn't ultimately pay for sin. The sacrifice of bulls and lambs couldn't wash sin away for good. Sure, animal sacrifice provisionally sealed forgiveness upon the people until Christ could come. The ever-flowing ever, uh, stream of sacrifices in the Old Testament reminded the people, though, that the, sil- the bill of sin remained outstanding. But with Jesus, this is no more. In his one death, all our sin, past, present, and future, has been atoned, washed away, and satisfied. In Jesus The bill that stood against us with all its legal demands has been nailed to the cross to read, paid in full. You are fully forgiven in Christ alone. And by his righteousness, he earned for you everlasting reconciliation with God. And this sure reality of such a great salvation has been doubly, even triply confirmed for us so that we might know that it is reliable and authoritative. Now the author gives us this evidence. First, he points out that the gospel of salvation was announced by the Lord. During his earthly ministry, Jesus announced the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Second, Christ's gospel was confirmed to us by those who heard it firsthand. This refers to the apostolic message, Proclaim to us. That is, we may not hear the gospel from the very lips of Jesus, but we do hear it from the apostles who receive the gospel directly from Christ. The preaching of the apostles, then, it's not hearsay. It isn't fuzzy stories passed on for generations by forgetful oral traditions. No, the the apostles heard the gospel from Jesus himself. And then they turned around to relay the same gospel to us. There's only one degree of separation from us and Jesus preaching, the apostles, which makes the New Testament proclamation just as authoritative and binding as the law given at Sinai. But there's more. The apostles heralded what they heard from Jesus And God endorsed their preaching with signs and wonders. 
by miracles. God imparted additional proof and evidence for the truth of the gospel. By bringing forth wonders, then the author sets before us the honest function and character of such miracles. Now, as you know, it kind of goes without saying that much confusion circles around signs and wonders. People still desire them today. False teachers claim to perform them. In Jesus' day, an evil generation sought signs and wonders. Many are the abuses and errors concerning miracles. So what, then, is their proper role? Why did God employ such wonders? Well, first, as the author points out, they are collaborating evidence. They underscore the truth of the word. This means, then, that the word is chief and primary, while signs are secondary. Secondly, they testify about Jesus and his work. The point of a miracle is to show forth Jesus as the Messiah of David, the Son of God, and the Savior of his people. A miracle, by definition, points away from itself to Christ. Miracles are not meant to attract attention to themselves. They're not a fireworks display to make us ooh and awe. No, miracles are lessons about the gospel of Jesus. They are supernatural visual displays to showcase the invisible glory of Christ. In this way, any particular healing isn't primarily about the person healed. For example, Jesus gave a blind man his sight which is kindness of God, but physical sight was not essential to the man's salvation. By faith in Christ, the blind man was saved for eternal life, irrespective whether he could see or not. Thus, the restoration of sight was first a sign that Jesus had the power to give true spiritual sight to recognize him, and then to bring us to glory where all the miseries and handicaps of this life will be no more. Hence, Jesus said, Blessed are those who believe, but have not seen. Miracles confirm the gospel, but faith rests in the gospel. Without a miracle, this faith is stronger. Indeed, without the preached word, miracles lose their clarity and efficacy. Signs verify the truth of the word, and the word is necessary to rightly interpret the sign. As you know, hundreds of Pharisees witnessed the miracles of Jesus, but didn't come to faith. Why? Because they rejected Jesus' teaching. Without the authoritative word of Christ, the miracle then becomes a wax nose. You can interpret the miracle any way you want to. Thus, the Pharisees read Jesus' miracles as works of the demons and the devil, a supernatural contravening of the laws of nature means nothing without the word of God to interpret it. A wonder that doesn't point to Jesus or accompany the gospel is not really from God, and it has no value for our faith. 
Yet during the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, God did grant supporting evidence to the truth of Jesus and his salvation by signs and wonders. We don't have to witness the wonders for ourselves. We don't have to be a recipient of the miracles. But the recorded miracles of Jesus and the apostles confirm and endorse the legal validity and certainty of the gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins. And there's one more piece of support. The Holy Spirit. God distributed the Holy Spirit and his gifts to the saints according to his will. In short, the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, seals the veracity of the gospel. Now, as you know, the precise gifts of the Spirit vary from saint to saint. The apostles were gifted, uh, enabled to do miracles, and the Spirit inspired them to write down the gospel infallibly. For us, the Spirit blesses us with gifts to serve, to encourage, and to teach. Some have more gifts of the Spirit than others. And yet we all have the Spirit of Christ living in our hearts. We are all united to Jesus by the Spirit, and the Spirit illumines and ratifies the gospel in our hearts so that we might have true faith and life everlasting, all of grace. And within, and with the Spirit in us, the great salvation of Jesus is inescapable if we neglect In fact, all the evidences are given here to drive home this point. Declared by Jesus, attested to by the apostles, endorsed by miracles, and sealed by the Spirit, the great salvation is sure, binding, and reliable, and therefore inescapable. Thus, there is no way that we can spurn the gospel or drift away from Christ and not reap the consequences. Indeed, the contrast between the Old Testament law and the New Testament gospel brings this out. Namely, if we disregard Christ's salvation, and particularly his perfect atonement for us, then we put ourselves back under the law. Outside of the great salvation, we are destined for eternal judgment. The exacting retribution of the Mosaic law actually pointed to this final judgment, to that one day when God will bring all things into judgment. Likewise, Christ's atonement redeems us from this very judgment. To be covered in in the grace and blood of Jesus delivers us from the coming wrath and punishment. And it guarantees us life in heavenly, in the heavenly Zion. Thus, if we discount Jesus' eternal salvation, then we are left under everlasting condemnation. This is why abandoning Jesus is the worst thing we can do. And it is why we should attentively and actively remain anchored in Christ. Jesus must be our mooring constantly. For the world wants to drown our faith in its alluring temptations. The evil one seeks to shipwreck us with false doctrines. And the flesh within us untethers us from Jesus by making us trust in our own good works. 
Thus, with diligence and vigilance, we must always focus our faith to be anchored in Jesus Christ and his great salvation. Besides, there's nothing more sure than the gospel of Christ. As surely as we trust and rest in him, so he will lavish upon us his great salvation now, and he keeps us for the everlasting rest in glory. Thus, let us ever be anchored in Jesus Christ. May we never be untethered for him. And with his spirit living in our hearts, may our faith then be ever ready and eager to worship and serve Jesus Christ, the Son of God who remains the same forever. And may we bless him now and always. Amen. Let's pray.